Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. I felt like I had to have this air of I have it all together. And so I really internalized a lot of this and just felt like a complete failure. That was the rock bottom spot. What got me out of that was being the opposite, was actually starting to open up and share. And I kept thinking, if I just spend more money and get a better qualified person, or then it'll work, then it'll be better. And what was in the gap for me is I really didn't understand that the problem was me. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the not getting the right person or paying a higher premium, it was the problem was me. Through a series of exercises and making myself do it and the right coaches being in my place, I started to see things about myself I hadn't seen before. And that's when everything started shifting for me. For me, for me. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Natalie Jill. You can find her on Instagram and elsewhere at Natalie Jill Fit. All right, look. If you don't know who Natalie Jill is, she is a legend in the fitness world, but that's not why I wanted to have her on the show. I wanted to have her on the show because she was willing to talk about how her success came crashing down and turn it around. So she found herself in a position where she was in a multi-million dollar business, but it started to crash. And her husband didn't want to be married to her anymore because of other circumstances. And in this interview, we took a deep dive into the truth about what it's really like being in business and frankly, being in life. And I am so proud of her willingness to share these stories to help you guys learn. So there's so much in this for all of you. Before we get into this episode with Natalie, I want to remind you that I am now accepting applications for my 2019 Masterminds. If you are a hard-charging entrepreneur that is spending way too much time in front of a computer and not living the life that you want to live, come join us in 2019 in Boston, Monaco, and Italy. We are now more than half sold out. So if you want to be a part of this with us, fill out an application at workhardplayhardmastermind.com. We'll jump on a call and we'll see if you're a good fit for the group and if they're a good fit for you. So Think of the mastermind as two parts. The first part is the trip itself. We'll be heading to Boston and do things like meeting with Tom Brady's trainer and training at Gillette Stadium to get a metabolic baseline to help people improve their fitness life. We'll be going to the south of France where I'll have helicopters meeting you in Nice to drop you off in Monaco. And then we'll wrap the year up having some fun in Italy doing things like truffle hunting and hot air ballooning over Florence. The second part of the mastermind is what actually goes on in the mastermind over those four days. Our group of 24 entrepreneurs will help you brainstorm and accelerate what you want to achieve in 2019. And we'll do this through a variety of exercises, or we'll help you figure out what the next chapter is for you. So go to workhardplayhardmastermind.com, fill out the application, and we'll jump on a call to see if you're a great fit. Okay, please enjoy this conversation I had with Natalie Jill. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
I am so glad that you're here. You know, I have really been looking forward to this conversation for a few reasons. First, your reputation in the fitness and online space is unparalleled and you could really teach us so much from that journey. But what I really wanted to talk about today, in addition to that actually, is when I met you last month, you were in such a different place in your life that I almost didn't even recognize it was you. <laughs> I had to nudge somebody and go, is that Natalie? You know, there was like an energy. It was a different energy. And then when you shared what was going on in your life, it offered so much perspective. And I really think that this place that you're in in your life right now can really help people with those struggles, which we're going to talk about. So with yeah. that long intro, thank you for making the time. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here and talk about anything like that. Okay, cool. So let's just get a little bit of background just for some perspective, because I really think that it informs who we are. So I think a good jumping off point would be to talk a bit about uh, where you grew up. Could you kind of tell us maybe, maybe give us an example of something that your parents did with you as a kid, which sort of typifies what your experiences were like from, I don't know, 10 to 15 or something? Let's see. So where did I grow up? I grew up outside of Washington, D.C., um, which is a very different vibe, I find, than the West Coast vibe that we're on now. So uh, and what I mean is like on the West Coast, there's a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of free spirits, a lot of visionaries. And my experience on the, on the East Coast was more like very routine and regimented. Like everybody goes to college, everybody gets a corporate job, like very like, this is what you do. This is there's not really a lot of room for the outside of the box thinking. At least that's how what I experienced. So I grew up with you know a family that expected that of me. They expected me to you know go to a good college, to get a good corporate job, to get married, have two point five kids, you know the, all of that. So that that's sort of what I uh, was was taught growing up. But one thing that my parents did that served me very very well was they. My dad um, early on would always hold me accountable for everything. Like everything was always, you know, about being accountable. So it's never somebody else's fault. It's your fault for things. Not, and I don't mean in a way where he would blame me for things, but more I learned early on that it's my responsibility if I'm happy, if I'm not happy, if I'm overweight or not overweight. It's always our, it's our own responsibility and we should be accountable. What did your dad do? He was a CPA, certified public accountant. Ah, okay. So he was uh, super analytical and yeah. uh, he was working from a, probably a different side of the brain than perhaps you were. I don't You know, he was still, he was a salesperson uh, still. So yes, he was an accountant, but he had a business and he was always like some, you know, hands in something else. <laughs> he, my yeah. dad was definitely a salesperson. What did you think that you wanted to be when you were in high school? Gosh, you know, I I've always gone back to like, what did I want to be? I I think in my earliest memory of what I wanted to be in high school was I I had this idea that I wanted to be a reporter, and I just remembered that recently, which is funny because as I've shifted more into podcasting and interviewing people, and that is what lights me up. So that was one of my early memories. I also I knew I wanted to make a difference and be known. I just didn't really know in what at the time. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit um, from high school. You got your BS in health and human performance yeah. from Maryland. And yeah. you started doing medical sales for, I guess, somewhere around 15 years. And then, you know, the bottom falls out. Your first marriage was coming to an end. You had 
you know, over a million dollars in debt. You're a new mom. You're carrying around, uh, you know, an extra 50 pounds. Can you kind of take us back to that time in your life and tell us how you got out of it and how you turned that into a multi-million dollar business? Yeah, sure. Gosh, lots of questions there. So um, the reason I got into medical sales, first of all, was no other reason than I heard you can make good money in it. (laughs) So that was literally the only qualifying factor of why I was doing that. So um, I learned sales early on. I quickly moved up the ranks. I became a sales director. And and did really well. I, I was making great money. I had you know a great team. I, everything everything looked perfect on the outside. This was back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. And what was happening then? Uh, for those of you listening that remember this, I mean, the housing market was crashed. The stock market had crashed. So this was a time where I was coming from a place of I have a good corporate job. I've never been in debt. I was you know. Went to college. I have the like. I'm not supposed to have issues. Is what I was was blinded thinking, and what I where I found myself was going through a divorce. Uh, a newly single mom who had gained a lot of weight while pregnant. I'm only five two, so it's it was actually sixty pounds more than I am right now today, um, which was a lot of weight on me. Where I had done the responsible way, buying a house, putting twenty percent down, all of that was gone, um, and I found myself no longer able to even pay my mortgage and having to take a job demotion because I was a newly single mom and I couldn't do the travel required with my current job. So everything started sort of collapsing around me. And what was really hard for me at the time, and I know some people can relate to this, is I I felt super fake because no one... I didn't feel like I could tell anyone what was going on. I felt like I had to have this air of, I have it all together. And so I really internalized a lot of this and just felt like a complete failure. That was the rock bottom spot. What got me out of that was being the opposite, was actually starting to open up and share. And I turned to Facebook at the time. With At the time, Facebook wasn't as big as it is now. And I had maybe my 100 high school friends. But I thought, okay, something's got to change with me. Um, I'm going to start focusing on what I'm eating, how I'm working out. I'm going to start controlling what I can control. And I turned to Facebook for accountability because I thought if I post my meals here, if I post what I'm doing here, then I'm accountable and I, I have something to turn to. But so I didn't have any agenda other than being accountable. So by doing that and being really real and authentic, people started following. They wanted to know what was going on. Like, why is she eating this? What that's interesting. And I would post my workouts and they'd see my body changing and they would see me getting empowered. So being authentic and sharing and being real and connecting on Facebook with people started to grow an audience for me, which ultimately led to a product idea. So, you know, it's not so much having unique product ideas that make businesses, it's having a lot of passion and purpose behind something and having a solution that solves things for people. So what I was going through was not uncommon. Even though I thought it was at the time, it was not uncommon. There were a lot of people that were depressed because of the financial downturn. There were a lot of people that had gained a lot of weight from having a baby. There were a lot of people that were going through a divorce. That You know, I, you feel alone when it's happening, but reaching out on social media, there was a lot of people in those situations. So as they saw me turning around, they wanted to know what I'm doing. So I started sharing. And what those recipes and workouts turned into was some e-programs initially. So my very first product was my 7-Day Jumpstart, which is now a best-selling book in stores, by the way. But at the time, it was an e-book download that I created in a weekend uh, about exactly what I did to get out of things. And that was the first product I sold. And I did it as a place of helping people 
And I was really just pricing it to cover what it was costing you know, me to do this. And I didn't expect it to turn into much at all, but it, it just kept growing and it kept expanding and it was working for people. So they were sharing it. And that one ebook turned into multiple millions of dollars, which was just crazy to me. But because of that, my confidence started coming back. A lot of things started shifting and changing, which then I my sales hat, my marketing hat went on. And as people were asking for help on things, I was creating more and more for them, which led to workout DVDs and ultimately a big business. So my business grew from that. And around this time is when uh, Brooks is now my husband. He was my, my boyfriend at the time. He really was instrumental in helping to build all that. So we were together now. You know, He was putting his tech hat around what I was doing. You know, like for instance, like my the website I built myself had music and a black background. It wasn't it wasn't at all marketing friendly. Right. right it was purple. Was, yeah. He knew what to do to make things, you know, to go to work better. Or like well, now, that was, sorry to interrupt you, but what what give me a give me like a a time uh period. Was this 10 years ago? No, this is so let's talk this is more like eight years ago now, seven, eight years okay. ago. So okay, we cool. start He's basically the one that sort of makes things run smoother. So like where I was emailing people their product when they sent a PayPal, he was able to help me automate it. So like it would help automatically. So so we really built the business together and we were growing the business together and everything was good until we almost started getting too big. <laughs> and what I you know, it's funny people chase this like I want to make millions, I want to have a big team. But when with all that stuff comes a whole new set of set of problems. So where we grew this being very grassroots, being authentic, being real, sharing, adding value, helping people, you know, making things simple. Next thing you know, we've got a big team. I'm getting a lot of requests for things. I'm getting pulled in different directions. And I, I started to start losing you know, what it is that built my business. Um, because yeah, on the outside, we look like this big business with all kinds of products and a big team. And you know, I'm on, I have PR stuff everywhere. But on the inside, it's it's really not operating that way. It's not so much profitable. Like it starts getting to a point where it's just a lot of work and a lot of managing. And I remember, you know, him and I walking in our house and feeling like we couldn't even we didn't have a home anymore because our home was just a bunch of people working for us and, and we felt like we were working for them all of a sudden. Like give me the give me an example, just so just so I'm tracking. So was it like you had a bunch of people that were staff that were in the living room and you had cameras everywhere for your videos or was that <laughs> yeah okay, pretty much it. it became like a like a system i mean at one point we had like 15 different people helping us and doing things for us and it was like it just became like the sales machine where and it didn't it didn't it just didn't it went back to what it felt like in corporate that's the only way i can explain it and what happened with me and me and my husband was that it really it got into like a weird place of I'm basically managing and giving him a list of things to do, and you know that's not fun for him. And then I, we're no longer creating; we've got all these people, and it gets to this point where like I just need to sell to to pay people, and you know it just it lost its touch. And just like things do regulate itself out, you know people would look at my business and go, "Oh, it's so successful," but what they didn't know was now it wasn't a happy place anymore. And you know, it, we weren't. We stopped being profitable. We went from being highly profitable to like, yeah, we're generating a lot, but we're not actually making a lot. <laughs> we're just pay, making enough to pay everybody. Where was the disconnect with overhead and profit? Was it 
Was it that you started to change and you couldn't connect with the audience or like, what was it that caused it to go? Because you were doing millions, right? Yes, we were. Okay. So, so people listening are, are like, okay, I know the name. I know she's doing millions. So how, like how, I don't understand. Like, where was the problem? Yeah. Well, sometimes the, the creative, like I, I consider myself a creative. I'm a visionary. I wasn't a solid business person. I mean, that wasn't what I would think about. Let's get sales. Let's drive revenue. Let's help people. I, yeah. I, I never lost the like, let's help people and, and let's create, but I wasn't. Paying, I didn't want to hear the bad stuff. I didn't want to hear what are, what are we paying people, what are we owing people, and I was really in a in a people pleasing spot in a lot of ways, like people pleasing my audience, but also people pleasing people that work for me. Like, oh, I can't, I can't, you know, ask them to make less, or I, you know, I, I was almost like walking on eggshells around everyone, like making sure keeping the peace, making sure everybody's happy. But I wasn't looking at it from a business standpoint at all. I, I really, I didn't know. I never had training on like actually how to run a business or how to lead people. So I, I owned that. Like now, like I, I didn't understand. I didn't take the time to learn. I just wanted to do my thing and be creative and be on camera. And what I found was as I was getting pulled in so many directions, the thing that I stopped doing was the thing I needed to do more of, which is crazy. So, and now, like rewinding and looking at this, it's like, oh my gosh, no wonder it just went the wrong direction. But I decided, I decided that like I needed to connect less with people and I needed to be more, you know, hands off. Like I needed to be just on camera. I needed to be working with the big brands and big deals. And I didn't have time to deal with the people. <laughs> like that's the completely wrong thing. you know. So now I'm like, okay, I don't have time to write emails. Let's have hire somebody else to write the emails. I don't have time to answer social media. Let's have someone else do that. I don't have time to do posts. Let somebody else do that. And the more I did that... And by the way, you cannot pay somebody to be your voice. It does not work. It doesn't work. So I did that. I kept throwing more... And I kept thinking... If I just spend more money and get a better qualified person or this, you know, then it'll be, then it'll work, then it'll be better. And what was in the gap for me is I really didn't understand that the the problem was me. <laughs> you know, it wasn't the not getting the right person or paying a higher premium. It was the problem was me. When you say the problem was you, where where was the problem for you specifically? Was it your role in the business or was it your place in life or what was it that was that you can sort of identify as this was my problem? A few things. One, ego. And I think that when you get a lot of money quickly, um, that tends to to increase your ego. You think like you know more than you actually do. So there, the ego was a big problem. Two, disconnection. I, I just decided like I that I felt like connecting with people was a distraction. Like I don't have time to get in the groups. I don't have time to social media. So I disconnected. And in fact, I had mentors that are highly reputable that would encourage me to disconnect even more. Like, oh, you shouldn't network. You should, you know, hands off. So I kept getting this reinforcement that that's normal. Like I needed to disconnect and distance myself, which literally is the opposite thing that we need to be doing. If you disconnect and you're not connecting with people, you're not being authentic, you're not actually connecting, your business will fall apart. I mean, that you can't lose that connection piece. So... That's what happened for me. And as that was happening, you know, my husband saw that happening and it was it was kind of a lose-lose because now he's seeing that I'm disconnecting further from the business and he's seeing, you know, that, that doesn't work. He's frustrated and he describes it like he felt like he was slowly cra- crashing a plane, <laughs> like mm-hmm. slowly crashing a plane. So he says, "I'm out. I don't want to do this," which created more problems because in not digging deep enough, it's like, okay, if he's out and he's not going to help me, 
I need to hire more people to help me. So I just kept throwing more money after a problem. Right, right. And so this spiral just keeps a slope. I just got this vision, this visualization of Brooks of the slow plane crash. I mean, I completely yeah. see what this is like. All right. Yeah. Now here you are and you hit this point and you've got to go on to this or you decide that you're going to go on to this next stage. And you started identifying that there were certain triggers that you were, you know, you said something that was really honest and you talked about, you know, earlier you just talked about ego and, you know, for you, it was, there was so much ego that was wrapped up in this, you know, based upon your own perspective. Can you kind of tell us how you were able to work through that by identifying triggers? Yeah. So it started with being basically forced into personal development. <laughs> so again, when you have an ego, you think you know everything and you think personal development's stupid and you don't need more of it, or at least I, that's what I thought. So I, you know, I, I watched my husband, um, who's really loves personal development. He's constantly doing it. He wanted me to, to join and do some courses with him. And I, I had literally no interest. But it got to the point where he was saying he was unhappy. And if he, if I didn't work on myself with him, that he didn't know if he wanted to stay married. And that scared me because I'd been married before. I have a daughter. And I certainly didn't want to be divorced again. So literally for him, I sort of went kicking and screaming into personal development classes. And I really did not... I was very resistant. But through a series of exercises and making myself do it and the right coaches being in my place, I started to see things about myself I hadn't seen before. And that's when everything started shifting for me because I went back to that message my dad you know, had told me as a kid that I really had forgotten that we we truly are 100% responsible 100% of the time. So I somehow shifted during that from... It's not that I've all these people that are doing terrible jobs for me. It's not my husband. It's not all these bad people. All these people are working for me. It's not all these things. It's not the economy. It's not Facebook algorithms. It's not any of that. It's me. I'm the common denominator. So that really hit me hit me hard. And I started really questioning like, what's my purpose? Why am I even doing this? And took probably a good year to really dig into who I am and why I had created these patterns I had been creating and why, you know, really taking a different perspective from it and working on myself. Was there any particular courses that you would recommend um, that really, really helped? Yeah, I'm a huge fan. Um, I started, it's called the one I, the, the one that I went kicking and screaming into, but really shifted me. There's two of them in San Diego, um, similar, but different. One of them is called ALA San Diego. And another one is called uh, Hardcore Leadership. Uh, my friend Shanda owns that one. And it's the same type of idea um, facilitated by that. Those are the two types of programs that I started with. And it really... Like I said, I, I went in there kicking and screaming. I really... It took the right people and the right people standing for me to stay stick through it and not let my ego take over and say, I don't want to be here. But that type of training is what first opened me up to showing me that there's there's so much more. And you, after you left the courses, you were super grateful that you did it, yeah? Yeah, I wasn't grateful during it. <laughs> I was grateful <laughs> after. Yeah, it's really like, I, as a kid, I had done um, like a landmark forum. I had done, I, I felt like I knew it all, like I had done it all. But 
what I on the outside now, I think people are crazy not to do personal development. Like I thought they were crazy doing it before. Now I'm like, how can anyone not do it? Like you have to invest in yourself and work on that stuff or things don't happen. And what's really crazy is how much people have told me I've changed in a good way. Like where I thought I was, I just thought I was darn perfect. <laughs> you know, now I'm like, whoa, why did I have any friends before? Wow. Why did I have any clients before? Like it really has gone a whole different direction. That I really see things through a whole different set of uh, glasses at this point. There's sort of like a beautiful feminine softness that you have, at least from from my perspective, looking in from the outside. So I don't know how you receive that. But, <laughs> I mean, really, really just, I think it's really cool. Thank you. You're welcome. You talked about uh, triggers a little bit. I'd like to cover uh, some of that. Can you give us an example of what a trigger is, how it shows up, and maybe you could do it through the story that you told about your friends, your friends showing up in a uh, in a roles recently at a lunch date, you know, with a driver, and how that triggered you. Yeah, so triggers are really anything that um, creates a an emotional response in us. So, like, we all have them, and I'll, and I. The tr- the first one is the annoyance trigger, like when you feel yourself sweating and getting uptight about something that, and you don't, and it's like a pattern. It starts to become a pattern. So, like for instance, um, maybe someone tells you you're a fake on social media, and it like heats you up, but somebody else doesn't even get triggered by that, or someone um, tells you you made a mistake, and like, or they correct your grammar. Like somebody, one person might not care if someone corrects your grammar. The other person wants to wants to like pummel them. Like, what do you mean? I cre- I made a mistake. Like they get defensive. Whenever you feel like this heated need to defend yourself <laughs> or to hide, that's a trigger. An example of a trigger uh, for me was I had a, a trigger around people that look like they have a lot. What I mean by that is like I, I had had lunch with a friend, a really good friend of mine, and she pulled up with her Rolls Royce and her driver. And I got embarrassed and uncomfortable. Like, And what was going through my head was like, Oh my God, this is kind of ostentatious. Like, What if somebody sees this? Like, We look like we're trying to be better than somebody. Like, It bothered me where she doesn't even think about it and she shouldn't have to think about it. So I really started digging into like, why do some triggers affect other people you know, and not others? And really, they're usually formed from patterns and beliefs that we have created from being a child. So like digging back and this is a very quick example of a of a, a lot more deep conversation but like if i were to dig back to where that came from because i have a constant trigger around people that look like uh, they have a lot of money or they're flashy where that came from for me as as a kid two things one we were robbed when i was a little kid and uh, my parents said when people have nice things they want to, others want to take them from you so i learned that early on i also was made fun of and called a Jap as a kid, a Jewish American princess, um, if I had anything nice. And I didn't like the way that made me feel. So I learned early, like if you look like you have nice flashy things, people don't like you. They want to be mean to you. They want to take it from you. So that's the belief that I formed. And it was a pattern that I started creating. And that's what was triggering me. So the cool thing is when you have a trigger, if you can do that work to go back to where it's coming from, um, and how that's showing up in your life, you then you it's it's almost like um like they would do a training uh, on drug addiction or alcohol addiction. Like you once you own it and know where the problem is coming from, you've got power over it, right? So once you have power over it, it stops triggering you as much because you know where it comes from. 
You also talked about how there's a story that's associated with those triggers. So in other words, you get the trigger and the trigger is neutral, right? It's neither it's neither good nor bad, but you associate a story to it. Yeah. Yeah. You always because like the trigger to me was I hear I when somebody has a lot of nice stuff, then people aren't gonna like us. They're gonna want to take us, take it from us, they're gonna want to harm us. So the story I made up, and it's it is a story that we make up, is that by having nice things. People, you know, don't like you. And that's a made up story. And maybe some people don't like you, but that's not like the norm. It's not the every way all the time. And what's interesting is those triggers and patterns are different in different people. Like my husband, for instance, he loves to have nice stuff. He's much more flashy than me with nice stuff. And it would always trigger me. Well, his story as a kid was that he always wanted nice things and his family couldn't afford them. And he really wanted a polo shirt. That was something he really wanted as a kid. And one day his parents bought him one and he wore it to school and he was super proud. And the kids made fun of him because the polo was going the wrong direction because it was a fake shirt and he didn't know it. So he learned and made up this belief early on that when you're doing something fake, people know and they don't like you. So he made it... That became a trigger to him to have fake things. So he's made it known like, I'm going to have nice things and show it off. And that's what it came from as being a kid in that pattern. How have you been able to sort of like recognize it, interrupt it, and neutralize it? I mean, you were so honest about this that you even went as far as to say, you know, look, I, I'd, I'd go into a room and if somebody didn't know me, that it would trigger me. And I was like, wow, that's really interesting. So like, how does that still happen? Yeah. So triggers don't go away. But what happens, the goal is to understand and learn where they come from and be able to start recognizing them faster and shifting out of them. So for instance, I do still get triggered by things all the time. It's just that, can I quickly realize, okay, I'm being triggered. This is where it came from and neutralize it. That's the whole goal is just to get back to neutral. You know, I was getting ready for uh, a workshop that I was teaching on triggers and patterns. And I, as I was like literally working on my presentation, I was calling to check on my car. And it, which was a, for service, and they put me on hold for like twenty minutes, and it was, and I was super triggered and annoyed, and um, so I hung up and I called back, and again they put me on hold for another twenty minutes with the elevator music. So I'm fuming, I'm getting more and more triggered. Third call in, I blow up at the customer service person, like I can't believe I'm on, and I, like so yeah, clearly I'm working on a presentation for triggers and patterns, and I just got completely triggered and blew up at somebody like that's doing me a favor, helping me with my car, right? This innocent customer service person. So it was interesting. As soon as I, I got off, I'm like, oh, wow. I was just triggered. Where did that come from? Okay, that came from my belief that when people put me on hold or ignore me, they're dismissing me. Um, and that's why I was getting so heated. But it's not their fault. <laughs> it's not, so it's, it happens all the time to people. But the quicker you can recognize and shift out of it, um, the better it is for everybody. So it's, there's no perfection in it. I'm certainly not mastered it to a T, but I've gotten a lot better at recognizing when it's happening and being able to shift quicker. What stories or triggers are you currently battling that, you know, like give me like the one that's the one that's, you know, it's really, really difficult for you to get out of currently? You know, I'm actually for the first time in a really good place with it because I've done so much work the last few years, like so much work that I'm super clear on my vision now and where I'm going and what I'm creating. And so... I don't have a lot. The only one I would say that comes up for me a lot is my time. I go back to the story of like, I don't have time for things because I'm, I get so focused and I, I do have a lot on my plate at any given time. And um, I 
do sometimes say yes to things because I know they're good for me to do. And then I, I go through this story in my head of like, why did I commit to that? Why did I do that? Why did I say yes? So that would be the only thing that I think I battle right now. And so just working on like being much more intentional when I say yes to what I'm saying yes to. Okay. And you also talked about mantras and how much you, you know, you're using mantras now. You know, you were you were sharing, you know, people fly in from all over the world, they pay me thirty thousand dollars to do this, sort of like reprogramming your brain. Can you talk a little bit about how to do that? Sure. So we have at any we have a lot of times we have I call them false assumed truths um, that we tell ourselves. Like there's we have like these forty thousand thoughts a day that just are random in our heads telling us you know, oh, people won't pay me for that. People won't do that or whatever those thoughts are. Everybody has them. It might be different or you're big bones, you'll never get fit or nobody likes you or you're old or whatever. Everybody has them, these things that we're telling ourselves. And they're not based on anything other than just a thought we have in our head. So it takes a deliberate action to reprogram stuff. So something's in your gap, like for instance... um, for me and my husband, what was in our gap for a long time is we thought we could only charge a certain price point for things. And it was super frustrating for us because we knew the value we were adding for coaching or or our retreats. And we were like, oh, but our clients would only pay this. And so we were letting what we thought people would pay dictate what we were doing. And then we would feel resentful because we knew how much value we were giving and how much work we were putting into it. And we weren't even making money in the end of the day. So it took it takes reprogramming on things like that. So for instance, something I tell myself daily is people fly in from anywhere and pay whatever I'm requesting to be to work with me. And by saying something like that over and over to yourself, you do believe it and that becomes your new truth. And then it's a lot easier to present options to people because you're not attached to their no. If they say no, it's like, that's fine because there's other people that will. So it's really it's so anything that's in your gap it's reprogramming and I would say that with fat loss too. You know, I still have my, a big part of my business is my fat loss business. Whenever someone says I've tried everything nothing works for me, well that's a reprogramming problem right there because if you believe you've tried everything and nothing will work for you, then nothing will work for you. You just taught me something. You taught me in your gap. I never heard that term before. So it's I guess that the gap is basically where you are and where you want to go. Your gap is what you don't know about yourself. So for instance, I thought for a long time in my business to turn... Once I realized so much about me and what I needed to turn around in my business, what I got stuck in... And this is not too long ago. What I got stuck in is I just need more sales. If I have more sales, I can I can think. But what was in my gap was I actually don't need more sales. I need to get rid of all the people I have that aren't adding value. <laughs> so that was in my gap. And what was in my gap even more so was that I wasn't being rigorous and making these hard decisions and having these conversations because I was worried about people pleasing. That was in my gap. What was also my gap was I wasn't diving into the numbers and actually looking at black and white facts. So by understanding what was in my gap, and instead of having the story of, oh, I'm just creative and I sell, I don't need to know this stuff, by actually diving into my gap and learning the numbers and really getting understanding of what that was, it made it a lot easier to have those hard conversations with people and make the changes and free up income. So the gap is what you don't know about yourself. But if you don't know it, how do you identify what the gap is if you don't even know what the gap is? You have to ask for help. It, whether it's personal development on yourself or it's asking somebody that cares about you or it's, or asking for getting a coach. Coaches, mentorship groups, all that is important. Like I know you're a huge fan of mentorship group and coaches, um, you know, as as am I. I mean, you that is part of that personal development. A good coach is gonna tell you what's in your gap. 
A bad coach will not. A bad coach will people please you. A good coach is going to dive in and actually give you what you need. Mm, that's so good. Okay. All right. So the show is basically broken up into two parts. The work hard part of the show, which we just covered, and the second part, which is the play hard part of the show. So you know, a lot of entrepreneurs like yourself are super driven. They just don't take the time to play. Play hard, just by definition, does not have to be Champagne Spring and Saint Tropez, although it could be if you wanted to. It could be something as simple as, you know, taking the time to read a book that you've always wanted to read. So the point is that this is an area of your life that's unrelated to work. So what is a typical Saturday morning like for you? First, I want to say this. If you are in a business or job that doesn't feel fun and rewarding and something you're passionate about, then you're in the wrong thing. Because I, I do think that they they can, they should overlap and not feel like you're putting business in your personal life. It should all be one of the same. I, I really believe that. Like who I am in business is who I am in life too. And I think that's important. I think that's another thing in people's gaps is they have to have this big separation between it. So I, I don't... I'm not a fan of that. But how does my... So every day is a day where I have time for myself and find like most days... um, I mean, there's definitely some exceptions, but most days I would say my official work day does not start till 10. That doesn't mean I'm not up at 6. I am up at 6. But there's a lot taken care of with myself personally to get me in the right mindset to do do my work stuff starting at 10. Like a first call is never typically before 10. It always ends at a certain time where I so a lot of my outside a lot of time outside. Um, I love being out in nature and out in the sun and just even a walk around the lake is is a big change for me. Taking time for friends and connecting and having like deep conversations with people. I used to think of that as an inconvenience. That was definitely another thing in my gap. Like, oh, it's an inconvenience. I don't have time for this. But like, we don't have time not to have time for that. That's where the creativity comes. That's where the living is. The living is not in the work and then go to sleep and not talk to anybody. The living is in those interactions with people. So fun for me is getting out there, talking to people, connecting... And trying things that scare us. Like I, you know, every year on my birthday, I do something crazy that scares me. Like this year I went paragliding, last year I jumped out of an airplane. I'm even on a mission to do more of those things. Like looking, acting like we don't, we don't, because we, none of us do know how much longer we have. So if you live every day like that, like I stop saying no to things that scare me because why not? We have to experience all that. We get to experience all that. That's where the living oh my is. God, that is so freaking good. I'm glad we recorded that. That was really, really good. <laughs> um, do you know Jesse Itzler? I know of him. I don't know him personally. You know, he said something which was really sort of like what you just described. And he said, you know, we've got, if you're 50 years old, and, which he is, he just turned 50. You know, if you live the average age, which is 76, you got about 26 summers left. And that's if they're good ones. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. you're right. Tomorrow isn't promised and we got to live our life the way we uh, we want to live it. So I love what you just said. Okay. If you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Cool. Well, my daughter, my husband, and my dog would be with me. So that's the first rule. Anywhere and why? I don't... You know what? I Honestly, right where I am, I, I designed my life to live where I wanted to live. Like I live in San Diego, California, and I'm obsessed with it and I love it. And so many people have said to me, well, if I lived in San Diego, I'd be, I'm like... Dude, I picked up and moved across country to live in San Diego. I made it happen. <laughs> like you can, again, you can make things happen if you really yeah. want it. So yeah. yeah, I chose to live in San Diego and I don't see myself leaving it. I, I love it. Like I've, We've vacationed lots of amazing places. I have a lot of places I'd love to explore. 
I would just want to be here. I love where I live. Love it. If you can go to one restaurant before you die, where would your last meal be? Oh, geez. That's a tough one. What would my last meal be? And which restaurant? I don't know. Gosh, I, that's a tough one. I don't even know. I would probably be doing something else besides eating if it was like literally my last night. <laughs> I don't think I'd be eating. You know what I'd probably do? I would have to say, because I'm celiac, so I can't have gluten. And if it's literally my last meal, I'd probably go get something like really full of gluten just because I haven't had it in like 15 years. I can't. So I would say I would find like some crazy macaroni and cheese somewhere because I can't have that stuff. (laughs) What's the one thing that's rocking your world now that has nothing to do with work? What's rocking my world right now that has nothing to do with work? I don't know. These are tough questions. I... Wow. <laughs> um, okay, what's rocking my world is watching how fast my daughter's growing up. She's mm. 11, like going on 21. I don't know how that happened. That's rocking my world. Yep, I got one of those too. So I'm right there with you. If you had all the time and money in the world to pursue a hobby or a recreational activity, what would it be? But all the time and money, I would make a difference somehow. I would, I would maybe fix the water or hunger problem somewhere in India or Africa. What's the one thing you've always wanted to learn but haven't gotten around to yet? Spanish. Spanish. That one comes up a lot. What approaches have worked really well for you in improving your relationship with your significant other? It could be as simple as a date night or a couple's retreat. Listening and being present. Mm. Like my, literally my husband would come in and give me a hug and I'd be like, push him off me because I'm too busy with an email, which in hindsight, like that's the dumbest thing ever. So, so I've and I and it does believe it or not, it takes it doesn't come natural to me. It's I have to work at it, but that's what makes the biggest difference is to being present when he when he wants something. <clears throat> I love that you have the awareness of that. That's awesome. Okay, all right. So we're going to wrap up with a rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you like. It's a first thing that comes to your mind. Rounds. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? Oh, getting shit done. <laughs> What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? Aging. What keeps you up at night? To-do list. What do people never ask you, but they w- but you wish they did? Maybe about my dad. Because I, I lost him when I was young. Mm-hmm. Which audiobook or book have you re-listened to the most? <gasps> oh my gosh. It's a recent one. It's Bedros' uh, new book, Man Up. It's so good. It's probably my favorite book. I'm so glad you said that because he just reached out to me to interview him. So I am really excited to read and prepare for that. It's really good. I've read it like three times now. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Okay. What's the one thing that you own and probably should throw out, but never will? (laughs) My like size zero jeans. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they won't go. I can't get in them, but I will keep them. (laughs) <laughs> if you had to give a TED talk on nothing that you're known for or nothing that you speak about, and it could really be on anything that you have a passion for or anything else oh, at all. Oh gosh, where do you come up with these questions? <laughs> oh, wow. This is what I stay up at night thinking Jeez. about. On nothing I, that I'm known for? Nothing that you're known for. So we got to pull out you know, nutrition and fat loss and triggers. What's the thing that you're just like... you? I would give a TED talk on this. I don't... Gosh, I don't know. I feel like I've done all that in my business. Because if I'm, because if it's something I'm excited about, somehow it becomes part of my business. Got it. So you re, you know, I'm, what I'm learning about you is you really have done the work to incorporate your personal and your business life There's together. No so that you love both. There's honestly no separation. Like if I'm, that's the th- that's the th- that's what people miss. 
when, when people are like, how am I going to get rich or how am I going to do a business? Like it, you talk and teach what you're passionate about. That's what it is. Like anything that you're passionate about at the moment is what you teach and talk about. I freaking love that. Okay. Last question. We're going to change it up a little bit. What one question do you want to ask me? How did you come up with all these questions? <laughs> They're pretty interesting. Um, I'll take that as a serious question. I obsess over the nuances of questions because every time you ask somebody a question, there's a search function that goes off in your brain. So if I say to you, tell me about your childhood, well, you, you make a picture in your head about your childhood. And, and so you just go to whatever you want to go to. But if I can get it specific and I say, tell me about what it was like growing up in Maryland and maybe some things that your parents did with you from 10 to 15 years, your brain can go specifically to that memory. And so the nuances of a question will give me certain things. So like the TED, the TED Talk question I just asked you, for a lot of people, not you, but for a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll say, oh my God, I know exactly what I do. I would talk about surfing. I'm obsessed with surfing. See, and that's what they should do for business. Yeah. Yeah. Because, they, because it's something that's just like they have this huge passion, but they're not known for it. And nobody has any idea that they have any interest in it, but they would like l- talk all day long about it like or sports or something like that. Does that make sense? Yeah. And that makes me think that that would have been... If you had asked me 15 years ago, I'd have said health and fitness. Or if you had asked me two years ago, personal development. So yeah. But I I have a thing for whatever I'm dealing with or learning about at the time um, is what I teach and talk about. Just like my book that comes out in May is called Aging in Reverse because that's in my head about aging and how the, the stories that come with aging. So I have a book coming out on it. So I don't... I act quickly on whatever's coming up for me. Love that. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for the people that are listening? Final words and suggestions are when in doubt, tell the truth and be authentic. Like that's works, that works for everybody all the time. So when you're in a struggle, uh, look at where am I not being authentic? Where am I not telling the truth? What am I hiding? Um, that makes a difference with everything, whether that's your weight loss, your business, your relationship. Like what's the truth that I'm not telling? And coming clear with. And that's, it's like the truth shall set you free, which is not my words. That is that. And then the ask is if you liked this and you're, you know, tell me you heard it, uh, come say hi on social media at Natalie Jill Fit. Awesome. Well, that is a perfect place to end. Thank you. You're even, you're even better than I thought you were going to be. Thank thank you you so much for this. Thank you, Rob. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.